Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we share the journey of a woman who made it her life's mission to help others through their grief process. She used the tools she teaches others to use to help her through her own grieving process when she lost her mother. Through this conversation, you're going to learn how to use some of those tools, and you're going to learn what the grieving process is and how to overcome them. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Traveling Through the Grief Process. My guest in this episode is Debbie Richens. She's an advanced grief recovery specialist, a grief coach, an IACT therapist. She's trained in suicide prevention and ACEs, as well as a brain trauma recovery. She's a wife. She's a mother. She's an alienated parent and grandparent. She's a mentor for Santander UK Women in Business Program and Support One Mentee, and she's known in some areas as the Great Fairy Godmother. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you. It's very, very nice to be here, Michael. Where'd you grow up? I grew up actually in a variety of places. Um, I moved an awful lot as a child. Uh, I was born in London. I was born in an area of London called Lewisham. And when my parents uh, separated, I was then moved out to Wales very briefly to uh, to go to school in the snow, which was an experience because I'd never seen snow before. And then I was brought back to Reading and I did my main growing up in Reading. So Reading is about an hour and a half from the city of London. Yeah, kind of out in the country, maybe? Well, yes, it's um, down the road is Windsor Castle, you know, so about uh, mm. about three quarters of an hour is Windsor. So, yes, we're in the royal county of Berkshire. That's very cool, actually. What was your family like? Um, my mum. I was the eldest only girl, three younger brothers, but the youngest one actually grew up with my grandparents because when my mother left my father, he was only nine days old. And she had five of us under, sorry, four of us under five. Um, I was four and a half when she left my father and she was very ill. So my grandmother sort of said, no, you, you know, you can cope with the other three, but I'll take the little one and look after the little one. So he grew up down the road in Wiltshire, bless him, <laughs> and came home to visit at weekends or we went there to visit at weekends for Sunday dinner as a family. Outstanding. So your brothers and your sister, you have brothers and sisters? No, no, just brothers. Three brothers. I've got a brother, younger brother, and an older sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you loved- go to university? No, I, didn't. I would have loved a sister. I would have loved a sister. I had I had many friends that um, became like sisters when I was a child, but, you know, that wasn't to be. And I have a lot of adopted brothers because of all my brother's friends. And that, I say that works too. I, I'm, yeah. I'm the honorary uncle of many of my daughter's friends mm-hmm. because they didn't have the, an uncle, believe it or not, uh, in some of their families. So I'm the honorary uncle, yeah. which is great. Yeah. And they still call me uncle to this day, which is kind of cool. So you're a wife and you're a mother and a grandmother. Yes. Yes. And uh, I'm really blessed. Um, My lovely partner, he's my my second. And until I met him, I didn't actually know what being loved was about. Really, truly loved and really, truly supported and cared for. So... The last nearly 14 years have been quite a blessing. And 
with him coming into my life, I have a stepson and this beautiful granddaughter who is 11 years old, going on 1100. And now she's taller than me because all that side of the family are giants. So it's very strange. With COVID, she was at this height and then all of a sudden she was at this height and now she's up here. Which is uh, quite strange. (laughs) And then my own daughter, she's now 30. She has two children who sadly I don't know. Um, My eldest granddaughter is six years old and the youngest one will be four in September. I'm assuming in in the bio that you sent me and some information that I had read that you're an alienated parent and grandparent. So is that where that comes into play? Very much, yes. Um, As I started to go through my divorce, I was separated from my daughter within 24 hours of saying that I wanted a divorce, that I couldn't live in the situation that we were living in anymore and that it was making me very ill. And at five weeks when I was forced from the house with behaviours that were really intolerable, She had changed from the sweet, loving-natured child that I'd known for the first 14 and a half years into someone I didn't recognise, snarling, unpleasant, unkind. And it, it was really quite shocking to see the change. But at that point, I hadn't got any idea of what had been going on to turn her into this this place of pain. And she wouldn't let me help her. So I had to I had to come away um, and it was very, very hard. It was really heartbreaking. But it was also, I think, a very salutary lesson in actually having your ears wider open than you expect to need to have them. Yeah, yeah I know. It's family, especially ones that are separated or broken up in in certain circumstances it leaves a scar within us that sometimes never heals but it wasn't it wasn't my daughter it was the language the adults used around my daughter it was the adults who spoke badly of me and really badly of me and so who did she please did she please the one who had never given her any real attention when we were a family or did she break the rules and want to be with me. And she chose to be with the person who had never really paid her that attention when she was at when he was at home. So they they often say there's a very old adage that you hurt the ones you love most. And children are actually very easily manipulated to do that because they want to please. And I see now from the behaviors that I've learned about that was an awful lot of pleasing. You know, it, it is unfortunate that um, children get caught up in the middle of uh, domestic issues. Um, mm-hmm. I, and myself, as a, I grew up in the same kind of environment, and my, my parents, um, especially my mother's side of mine, but they're both deceased, but my mother's side of it, um, she used uh, the, the rhetoric and false rhetoric in order to try to turn us against my father, which mm. there wasn't a need for. Um, I I spent many years in my law enforcement career. I was with the Domestic Violence Task Force. Mm. 
And domestic violence is not just physical violence, it's also mental abuse and, you know, kind of a situation. And it doesn't just involve a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. It involves partners, it involves kids in in regard to that whole situation. And unfortunately, um, from the mental side of it, manipulation is a tool used. Yes. And it's never acknowledged uh, or, or work through. Yeah. So the, the laws in the laws here are in in, in America. Um, uh, the majority of the laws here allow for like joint custody of children. Is mm-hmm. it the same thing there, or, or were you locked out completely? Well, because my daughter was fourteen and a half, I had a a very ill educated solicitor, sadly, and um, she actually said that there would be no point for me fighting my, for my daughter in court because the court would just take what she said at face value rather than investigating it. And she actually wouldn't go through with it. So I never got to fight for my daughter. I never got oh, that's that. unfortunate. If she'd been oh, two years younger, it would have been a different story. But because she was on the cusp of being able to speak in a court and speak you know, of her own volition, I lost that opportunity. I did have a court order that stated that I would have to be given travel information and um, telephone numbers, etc., for contact if there were any emergencies and obviously dates of travel. And um, when he was going to get married again, he sent me a lot of very unpleasant messages via text uh, demanding the uh, the passport because I'd packed it up safely. I hadn't anticipated that it would ever be needed for going abroad because we'd never been abroad together. And um, he just wasn't interested in holidays. So never occurred to me that he might need it. So I thought, well, I'll keep that safely rather than it disappearing. And the amount of abuse I got was incredible when I asked for the, you know, the information I needed for the contact order. and. Um, Eventually, it led to him finding somebody to forge my signature for a new passport wow. so that they could take her abroad so that he could go and get married in Mauritius, I think it was. I don't know where that's at. No, somewhere out in the, the you know, the, but he, he was the type of man that wouldn't even have a free holiday at the seaside where my brother lived. We always well, went on our own. That's that's really that's unfortunate, and yeah, and and when you as a grieving coach now, uh, would you agree that that even in those instances, you you kind of went through a grieving process? Hugely. I mean, when I when I left, I was distraught, bereft, broken. My heart absolutely ached, and for many many years. I likened the loss of my daughter to having a piece of my heart missing because I just didn't feel whole. And sadly, nobody recognized that I was grieving. In fact, I had a a, a GP when I first moved here to to Newbury who um, actually told me to go away and take my pills because I was a neurotic divorcee. She couldn't see that I was in the deepest, darkest depths of grief. 
And it really was another analogy I used a lot at the time, and I remember it so well, was I felt like I was on the edge of a vortex. And I felt like I was just wobbling and caught in the edge of the vortex. And I didn't know if I was going to fall into damnation or fall out and not have a clue what was going on. But I was just in this very painful place. And unbeknownst to me, I was actually very seriously ill at the same time. So that was dragging my body down as well as my emotions and making everything much, much harder. But I didn't know for another year that I was so very ill. Um, And I actually had a singular gallstone that was just slightly shy of the size of a tennis ball. And had it not been dealt with when it was, I wouldn't be here to have this conversation with you today. Holy smokes. That's Wow, that's huge, actually. Holy smokes. Gallstone was really interesting because when they took the scan, they were a little shocked at the size of it. Very interestingly, I'd had a trip to the optician three years previously, and he'd seen something because they see everything through your eyes. He'd seen something and he'd sent me to be investigated at the hospital, and the hospital couldn't find anything. So when I told them about that journey, they said, oh, yes, that would have been the beginning of the gallstone. But singular gallstones are calcium. So when the body is in extreme stress and distress, it creates very large volumes of calcium. So singular gallstones are much rarer than the normal gravel that people would have. That's interesting. The surgeon um, told, told me in his 24 years of experience, I was only his second one. Well, obviously, your journey up to that point was extremely stressful and, you know, extremely uh, hard on your body in itself. Yeah. I, I, uh, there's something unique that you just pointed out that I kind of expressed in some of my other episodes in regarding holistic health and practitioners that, you know, the eyes of the body, you know, the yes. eyes of the soul. Yes. And, you know, realistically, that just kind of proved that point. In, in the same thing, it's like a recognizing grief, for example, in loss. You can always see it in somebody's eyes yes. before you see it anywhere else. And, you know, by smiles, and you see a smile, but it's always an empty smile mm-hmm. or an empty yes. laugh. Yes. And actually, yeah. grief ages you as well. Whatever the form of grief is, it ages you. I had a conversation recently with another specialist who's quite new. And she wanted to ask me for some advice. And she said to me, I'm astounded. She said, we're talking here on Zoom and you look so much younger than your photograph. And I said, oh, thank you. That was only taken two years ago. (laughs) And she said, oh, my gosh, you know, you just look so much younger. I would never have said you're the age you've just told me you are. And that's the difference. And a lot of people have said that to me that they've seen me regain my youthful glow because I've I've shed so many layers of grief now since I certified to be an advanced grief recovery specialist. So did you have a career prior I to that? Did I, you have I, a career? I did. Um, I started work by accident in a dental surgery. My dentist rang me up and asked me to go and work for him. So I went to work for him and I ran a... I helped to run a very busy sort of dental practice front of house. 
Um, I learned to do nursing, but I didn't do a lot of it. It was usually when there was somebody sick and I got off reception. Um, and in later years, I um, supported, well, in all of those years, actually, I supported my ex-husband in growing his business. So I learned accounting and I learned basic taxation stuff and, you know, all the bits and pieces. And I did his books for years and years and I did all the ordering and things for him for his business. Um, and then I moved over here to Newbury because there was a position available in a dental practice here. And I was really quite surprised when they said they'd pay me £5,000 a year more than they first thought about. And I was very pleased because it meant the difference to me actually having something to eat or not at the end of the day, you know. So I was very pleased because the financial position I'd been left in with the divorce was that he went bankrupt and I lost everything. And he did that on purpose. Which you had was, to start from scratch. Yeah, but I really did. And, and it's had a massive impact. But after that, I stayed in dentistry and I took the opportunity to grow in dentistry. So I became a practice manager. And when I left dentistry, I had actually set up a practice, what they call a squat, from a building site. It was it was half a building site when I went in, and um, I populated it with staff and, and dentists and patients and hygienists and, you know, all the materials and equipment, and ran a very thriving diary, which... I'm very proud of because, you know, that's no mean feat, basically, you know, going with an empty box mm -hmm. and there you go, get on with it, which I did. And it was um, it was really good fun and I really enjoyed dentistry and until I started to work for dentists who were, let's say, a little left field and weren't really being they weren't really being as moral as they should have been about the, you know, the way they treated their their patients. And I, I didn't like that. So I came away from it. And at the time, my now mother-in-law, bless her, she's now dead. She was in the early stages of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She was disabled. And she was in a very difficult place of why me and, and just getting herself in such a stew and she really needed some support. So I said to Simon, you know, I'm having a really bad time in dentistry and actually I can't do this anymore. And your mum needs me right now. So if you don't mind, I'm going to stop for a little while. And he was incredibly supportive. And that's what I did. And um, and then for our sins, we set up a bra making business. And that that grew for six years. And that was a bespoke bra-making business. It wasn't just off the peg. And that was great fun. And I learned an awful lot about engineering, you know, because amazingly enough, it's two patterns that go together and they're completely opposing. So that was a really interesting journey. And that started because I couldn't get underwear that fitted properly because I was so little and narrow across the back and I couldn't get anything that was comfortable. So... We sat down and learned how to do it and did it ourselves. You know, the, the need for something always creates invention. It really does. It really does. And it, it put a few of the big brands' noses out because they said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, you can't do that. You've got to do it this way. But we did it for six years until I had very serious health issues. Again, something that had been undiagnosed or, sorry, misdiagnosed 28 years ago. 
that suddenly decided to rear its head. And um, I had ovarian and fallopian cysts and I was very, very ill. And that, again, completely floored me and nearly killed me. But I got back up and I got back on the horse and <laughs> got on with life because that's what you do, really. Well, so, I mean, your journey obviously has been like an amazing mixture of life's obstacles put in front of you, but you seem to have always overcome them, which is a that's a positive thing because to, to go down into the depths of despair and down from having th this much to having nothing and yeah. building that back up again is, is a very good thing, actually. So how did you get into uh, being a grief counselor? The grief recovery first came into my life um, through business networking. Uh, I was involved with a women's business networking group in Swindon in Wiltshire. And uh, we had a visitor who came to talk about grief recovery. As, and, you know, as everybody did, they all stood up and, and said their bit. And she talked about her fledgling business. And there was something there that really resonated with me. But at the time, I didn't have the spare funds to actually do the program with her. Um, and as the years went on, we stayed in touch. I kept following her journey. I kept sort of dipping in and out of her stuff. And it just really kept resonating with me. And I thought, yes, you know, it makes it makes so much sense of the journey I've had and the different things I've overcome. And, and why did I overcome them? Why did I get to this place? Because at that same point, uh, back in 2014, I had also started um, as an admin in a support group for alienated parents and estranged parents. And as the group grew, I met more and more who were also grandparents um, but obviously at that point, I was just the parent. I wasn't the grandparent. And then as the years on and I became, went on and I became the grandparent, I set up a local physical support group here in Newbury. And um, I supported over the time about 20 people on and off at different times that they would come and other people who had also experienced alienation, a father who felt very lost because he didn't know anybody that talked about it, an aunt who was the sister who also didn't really know anyone who would talk about it, and many, many people so afraid of actually speaking about their loss because they were you know, the very first thing you would get is judgment. I've I've had that for many years, people judging me. What did you do when actually I didn't do anything but leave an abusive alcoholic man who was, to all intents and purposes, destroying me emotionally? Which is the proper thing to do. Hmm? Nobody I should be stuck into a situation like that. I wanted to be alive for my daughter. I wanted to be well for my daughter. I didn't want to be that person in the corner that just could not be there to support her. But because I stood up for myself, she was literally taken away from me because he knew that was the way to really hurt me. 
Now, do you think when you when you decided to become now? I need, let me back up for a second. Mm-hmm. You, you, when you decided to go into the uh, like a grief recovery specialist, you became an advanced grief recovery specialist. What's the difference between an advanced grief recovery specialist and a grief coach? Grief the recovery first coach. Part of grief recovery is certifying and actually physically doing the process. You know, we had four day, four and a half day training, and two of those days was very full on doing the process I teach other people in seven weeks. And the the growth and change you make in that short time is incredible because you work on two people that um, you have relationships with that have had a very very negative impact on your life. And for me, it was my ex-husband and my father. So when I'd done those, there's a, a comment that John James writes in the book about um, picking the rucksack off your shoulder and leaving the sack of rocks on the floor behind you. And I absolutely felt that. It was the most amazing feeling and then um, because we also work online, we had to train again as advanced specialists because we use slightly different tools when we're working physically to look at someone as we would do if we were in a room with them. You know, you 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 learn to look slightly differently at all the, the subtle signals, the subtle facial signals and the subtle shoulder and hand signals that people use when they're talking. Some people are very inanimate. A lot of people are very animate without realizing. So they're all really important for us to understand the health and safety in a um, a physical way of our client, you know, so that we're making right. sure that they're not getting themselves into a very frightening, dangerous place. We want them to be able to be really open and honest about the things that they're wanting to acknowledge and release. But what we don't want is for them to get themselves so tied up in knots that they they walk away so distressed that they then can't complete the process because that's not healthy for them. You know, when they've got that far, they're on the cusp of having massive change in their lives. Now, as a grief recovery coach and a grief recovery specialist, do you deal with all kinds of grief? Is it is it oh, just yeah. with loss or death, or is it, it does it expand grief beyond that? Everything that um, grief is everything that has an unresolved, unspoken factor to it. So it can be a health issue, it can be a job, it can be a loss of a home, it can be a relationship with the child that you grew up with that suddenly moved. To the other end of the earth, you know, like people go from here to Australia, and all of a sudden, that wonderful physical relationship, even as an, even as an adult, if your best friend goes to Australia, there's a connection that's lost. And right. grief is where there is a change that is not in your normal sphere. So, you know, you, we have a perception of what we are expecting to happen in our lives. 
So we map it out in our minds, you know, this is going to happen and I'm going to get married and a couple of years I'll have a baby and another couple of years I'll have another baby and this will happen and that'll happen, you know, and we'll celebrate 25 years married and then we'll do 50 years, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a, a plan in your head. But if that plan changes, that is a change of your natural and normal. And so the, the grief comes into that. So it can be a death. It can be a loss of a friendship. It can be a dead marriage. You know, mine was a dead marriage. And I fought and fought and fought to keep it going. But the other mm-hmm. side was never going to fight to keep it going. The other side was having it easy, basically. You know, he was having his cake and eating it. And I was the one that was doing all the hard work. And it's not mm-hmm. because I want to take a badge, but actually, I did work hard, you know, and I did keep food on the table and the bills paid. And I did his business and I worked. <laughs> you know, it's and and a lot of people are under all of those pressures and that brings grief because you're not having the life that you thought you were going to have. And that's where it comes from. And I think that yeah, it recognizing that grief what would you recommend i mean what kind of things should we be aware of in order to recognize it whether we're experiencing it or whether somebody's from the outside looking in often it's behaviors and language so if you're using the words anger anxiety distress bereft they are all words of grief. Anger especially is a big word of grief. And a lot of people don't recognize that at all, especially especially men. They'll say, I'm angry, I'm angry. But they won't necessarily equate that to the fact that they're grieving the loss of something that's important to them because they right. don't necessarily know how to acknowledge it. And uh, children will do it if they don't have the language because they're too young. They will behave in a different way and they, because they're trying to get attention and they're trying to get people to understand mm-hmm. them. So, you know, when they're having their terrible twos, threes and fours, it's usually because nobody's listening to them and they're trying to express themselves, but they don't know how. And this goes on with alcohol. It goes on with drugs, whether they're prescription or whether they're, you know, the other side of the, the coin. Right. And various other things, some people use exercise as a form of restricting themselves and holding themselves together rather than a comfortable exercise, which is what it should be. So they're almost using it as a a tool to flagellate themselves with. Yes. And that goes, you know, for so many things, eating, shopping, fantasy, people disappear into fantasy. And another one actually is sex. You know, often if you've been in a marriage where you've had no love and attention of any kind, the first thing you do is you're you're out and easy with your body because you've never experienced it before. And you suddenly find people that actually they're only using you, but, you know, they're using all the language that you've not had, but you should have had. That way it doesn't matter. You're fulfilling a need, basically, that you've missed and still a grieving process, I'm sure, because then the guilt chart comes in after that. And then um, I'm sure the anger comes in and the denial comes in and everything, that, all the typical stages, quote unquote, of grief that they talk about, 
um, I'm sure would play that play out in that. It's so interesting because actually the uh, the Kubler Ross theory of the five stages of grief is so completely irrelevant. She was misquoted, and she she stood up a few times and said, "I was misquoted," because her study was done with people who were dying. So it was their stages of how they were acknowledging their grief. So the the five stages mm-hmm. relate to people who were dying. They don't relate to people like you and I who are living and going through experiences that we are grieving because we have a different thought process when we're dying to when we're in our normal sphere of life. So, I mean, we can get more into that, obviously, but I think that's a very interesting concept when you look at it from other perspective other than dying mm-hmm. in, in grief, because obviously the majority of people, the majority of us really kind of don't don't acknowledge the experience of grief unless we're losing someone or have lost someone. The, the aspect of death that shows up, and, and I've seen this in my personal life from as a young child all the way through watching it as yeah. a police officer, you know, grief kind of steps in Yes, at, at a certain point, and, you can, and, and they, then all of a sudden they start feeling and acknowledging, wow, I really am sad. And, but, but then they also experience the anger. Yes. You know, I I lost a, a, a two colleagues to suicide, and I'm and I was angry not only that they did it because they knew better, and when I say knew better, is in well, they knew the legal the legalities of it as well as the the physical of it. Well, exactly, and and they knew that they could reach out. They didn't have to, you know. These were best friends of mine, and it's like, okay, well, now I'm angry. Why didn't you make a phone call? Why didn't you pick up? And say, hey, look, you know, I need to talk. Kind of a situation. Then denial. Well. You know, I mean, you know, you justify why they did it and how they did it and because of. So, yeah, it's interesting the way it kind of plays out yeah. in, in regular life. Absolutely. And the five stages have been, have been used as a way of telling us how we should grieve when actually we all are unique human beings. Doesn't matter what age we are, doesn't matter what sex we are, we are all right. unique human beings. So we all have a different perspective. And we all grieve differently. So when somebody turns around and says to you, I know how you feel, you sort of sit there and think, no, you don't. (laughs) Because actually, (laughs) that's my grief. And you know how you felt when you were grieving your loss, but it's very different to how I feel about my loss. You know, and... There are so many different avenues that that takes. Right. And I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but grief does not have a time limit on it. No. You, you know, no. you don't say, well, I'm going to do this in five days and I'll be done. I'm going to do this in seven days and I'm going to be done. You no. know, or if, if you're two months down the road and you're still grieving, that's okay, right? I mean, the thing is that you never stop grieving. But you don't have to grieve with the pain. And that's the thing about what we do with grief recovery. We teach you how to detach the pain from the words. You know, and a great example that I can give you. My mother died on the 1st of May. As soon as her journey of 
very severe ill health and lots and lots of weird and wonderful things happening with diagnosis and mismanagement and and COVID and all of the other things that went on, you know, through to her having to leave her home and go into a care home. So many losses happening consistently. (laughs) And at the just before COVID started doing its thing, another specialist and I made a commitment to each other that we would sit down on a Monday at four and we would meet every week, barring high days and holidays, and we would do one, two, three completions, which is the end of the process that I teach. So that's a very specific letter. So we did, and I have done tons of letters to do with my mother's journey. And I have released every moment of pain, the misdiagnosis, the the diagnosis that should have happened when she had her stroke in 2012 that ultimately caused her to be um, sight and hearing impaired very, very severely because she nobody knew that she had the underlying condition because it had been seen on the CT scan in 2012 when she had her stroke but they didn't actually pass the information on. And that was frontotemporal dementia. So it explained so many things. And I sat down with every single one of these different things and I wrote and spoke about how I felt about each thing. And I released it. So when I went, when I had the call on the 30th of April, I went straight to Gloucester and I was with my mother at eight o'clock in the evening And I stayed with her all night and she passed at 6.40 in the morning. And that journey, those last few hours, I can quite honestly hand on heart say was the most peaceful, loving journey I've ever experienced with a dying person. And I've sat with a few people Mm -hmm. in my life who've died. Every other time my head has been full of stuff and my heart has Mm -hmm. been full of stuff. And this time it wasn't. And the journey with my mother's death was just the most extraordinarily peaceful and, dare I say, joyful release. And I, I, I still, for days afterwards, I was pinching myself thinking, gosh, you know. And then I spoke to my friend whose mother had died before Christmas, who's also a specialist. And she said to me, you're complete. You did that wow. journey and you're complete. And that's why you feel so good. You know, emotionally, I'm in a really positive, healthy, strong place. And I can talk about my mother without sitting here, bursting into tears, without feeling any of the pain that people talk about in their chest. And I don't have any of that stuff going on in my head. It's an extraordinary way to feel, but I a very joyful way to feel. That's that's amazing, actually. What, may I ask what kind of a relationship you had with your mother before that? I was very close to my mother. Um, when I was a child, obviously, as I said earlier, she was very, very sick. So I spent most of my childhood supporting her with her health. And then when she suddenly got this amazing job on the railway and was working shifts, I was busy running backwards and forwards with her dinner on a tray, you know, and uh, um, learning how to play with the trains. So that was quite fun. Um, and I'm extraordinarily proud of her. She went from being a very sick person 
who actually wasn't expected to live for very many years, to suddenly announcing the trains at Reading Station and then becoming the first lady undermaster at Swindon, having done loads of firsts for a woman on the station at Reading, which is why she got the position at Swindon. And then she did all the firsts at Swindon as an undermaster, and she went on to become first lady station master at Gloucester, which is the royal station. And she was in charge of the main station and six smaller stations. And then when she retired, she set up a credit union. (laughs) (laughs) And then after 13 years, she said, I've had enough of this, and she put it down. But it's still Mm. thriving, and it, it had started as four postcodes when she started it, and it now encompasses the whole of Gloucestershire, which is rather a large county. (laughs) <laughs> it sounds like um, you and your mother have something in common. I'm done with this. Now let's just do something else and move forward. Yep. And do it, yep. do it much bigger and much better. <laughs> That's interesting. Get that from so, her. She's an am- amazing example of how you pick yourself up out of the really toughest of times, you know, and you, you just, you learn never to say no. It's a bit like Richard Branson. You learn never to say no. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. So you in saying that, um, so basically the tools that that you teach others to use, you had to learn to use yourself. I did indeed. In order to help you through your mother's loss. Mm. And actually, you know, it, very interesting. When I when I was married, my brother-in-law was killed three weeks before my second wedding anniversary. He was only 23. He was a carpenter and he was a very talented young man and a very happy, joyful spirit. He was he was just an extraordinary young man. And that really was the beginning of the end of my marriage. But I hadn't understood that then. I just did what I could mm. to support my grieving husband who'd found something called alcohol, which he wasn't really much of before, but all of a sudden, you know, was best friends with. And then when my daughter was five years old, seven years later, his same side of the family, his aunt, who was only 45, her younger daughter, who was only 21, and the younger daughter's baby, who was 18 months old, were killed in a car accident. And again, it wasn't mm. their fault. It was somebody else who was being reckless with his vehicle and actually shouldn't have been driving. And that really was the final nail in the coffin for my my marriage. But it was also, it was like Hiroshima going off. I watched the implosion of all the people around me and their behaviours and their languages and how people would suddenly stop giving eye contact because they just didn't know what to say to you, you know, or they'd grown up with the aunt. And... Um, you know, they'd come and talk to you about her childhood stories so that I learnt so much more about her than I knew previously. And, um, you know, and, and that had a that just had massive, massive waves of impact on my marriage, unfortunately. And because he'd found the crux of alcohol, it was the thing, it was the only thing he could use to to dull his pain. He wouldn't he wouldn't go and get help from anywhere because that wasn't the manly thing to do, you know, and no, he wasn't going to do that. And so it was a lot to live with for 18 years. It, it was a lot to deal with and it impacted every part of our lives. And so well, it, 
found grief recovery, I actually sat and used the process <laughs> of those as well. And I so yeah, so um I used the process of grief recovery to deal with those problems. <coughs> I had never been able to speak of Martin or of Sheila Helen and Joshua without my whole body just going into a really painful tremor and and my heart would absolutely burst and the tears would pour from my face. And I did my grief recovery process on them after I did my, my ex-husband and my father. And I had the most extraordinary peace. And I can talk about them now as if they were just down the road. And, you know, that's a, that's an amazing opportunity to move through the grief process in a very positive way. Um, for, so, for some of the, those out there that maybe have not experienced that yet, can you help us understand understand the grief process? And we talked about the, the five things that were mis, misinterpreted, basically. But yeah. so can you help us understand that just a little bit? Absolutely. So grief comes in all forms. You know, you can be overly happy because you're trying to compensate for how sad you feel. You can be underly happy. You know, you can be morose and and very anxious and very distressed. There are so many degrees in between. So grief comes at all levels. You know, people will put a mask on and and be what is seemingly perfectly fine during the day. And as soon as they get home, they will, once they're behind closed doors, they will just descend into a very painful unkind, unpleasant place where they just don't know what to do with themselves. It can affect their eating. It can affect their drinking. It can affect how they take their medicines. If they've got health issues, it can physically affect the body. You know, our body responds to the the harm that we have emotionally going on in our minds. And the strangest things can happen with our body. And we won't relate it to the grief, but actually most of what goes on in our bodies is related to a form of grief because it's our body trying to get rid of it and it doesn't know how. So it's trying to bring our attention to it. Um, There is something that's quite prevalent in the world of alienation, which is broken heart syndrome. And that is actually overexertion of emotion and the heart just can't cope with it anymore. So people end up tachycardic, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, there is nothing the surgeons can do for broken heart syndrome. It can be managed with drugs. And I've lost two friends to broken heart syndrome. And it's it's heartbreaking, you know, to know that our emotions can be so destructive to our bodies. If only we knew. It's interesting because when you think of a broken heart, most people say, just, you know, get over it. There's other fish in the sea, go out and find another, find another. It's not that hard, you know, kind of move on. And yeah, that's interesting. You can actually have a broken heart. Back to uh, the loss of replacing, you know, go out and find yourself another boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, whatever it is. Go and buy yourself another dog. Go and buy yourself another cat. You know, we'll get you another hamster. Don't worry. It's not addressing the grief. It's just putting a sticking plaster over the plot over the right. You know, so if you if you you go through a divorce and you don't deal with the stuff that's going on inside you, 
you're going to go into the next relationship and it's not going to be as successful because you're still carrying the stuff with you and you've taken it into your new relationship thinking, you mm. know, oh, I'm all right, I'm fine. And then the cracks will start to appear, but you don't know what it's related to. What kind of tools would you recommend if somebody is is suffering? Is suffering the right word? We should say experiencing. Because it can be, you can say experiencing or suffering because it can be a very physical thing. You know, I can remember the how my chest would hurt when I spoke of Martin or, you know, Aunt Sheila. My chest really hurt. And it hurt for many, many years until I found how to detach the words from the emotions. So I no longer had to carry the, the painful emotions. So it can be suffering because it can be really debilitating. Grief can be very debilitating to the point that parts of your body can stop working properly. You know, you might start to have terrible, terrible problems with your back, which impede you walking or stop you mm. using your arms properly. And it's all emotionally linked. But your body is saying, well, I'm, I'm trying to stop you, but you're not taking any notice of me. <laughs> so the tools are... You know, what we teach people, first of all, is we teach people how to acknowledge language and behaviors, because when you start to listen to the language of grief and the language that people are using and the language you've used yourself, you suddenly sit there and go, oh, my goodness. Yes. You know, I, I really get that. And you start to see it in everybody around you. You can't right. help it. And it's the same with the behaviors, you know, the shopping where you, you somebody ends up with a house full of stuff that they're not using. You know, they've got six million pairs of handbags and six million pairs of shoes and, and they've got to have the latest this, that and the other, but they're all still packed up in their boxes in the house. You know, these are all behaviors we use to mask something else. And um, when you start to understand those two things, you start to look at people around you and your own behaviors very differently. You know, as a child, I chewed my fingernails so badly that I ended up with blood poisoning and I ended up being rushed to hospital at nine oh. years old and having to have my fingernail removed because it had gone gangrene. All these marks, really. And that's about trying to have people see me because I wasn't being heard. And I scratched my skin. I had terrible, terrible acne from a very young, young age. And the only time people took notice of me was when I scratched and made it sore. If I didn't touch it, nobody would say a word. So I scratched. And that was my way of trying to get attention. And it's it's um, a destructive behavior to ourselves. Self-harm, mm. you know, when you're cutting and when you're, you know, all these things that people do for self-harm. They're all forms of grief because they don't know how to express. So what we teach to begin with about the language and the behaviors is really, really important because as they start to look at their own losses and then they start to learn how to define their own losses and work towards understanding forgiveness and apologies and whatever significant emotional statements they may need to make, They've got to understand the foundations of it first to be able to craft the letter, to really say the things that they've just never fully acknowledged properly. And, you know, when you finish a letter and you say goodbye, it's exactly the same as a phone call. You're not saying goodbye to the person or the event. 
or the the skin or you know the the surgery or the health issue or whatever it is you're not saying goodbye to that you're just closing that conversation and that Ready makes a lot of sense not. actually yeah, yeah. Now, what when you write that letter what do you what do you do with it you read it and actually the whole process of grief recovery is about any one of us as specialists sitting and hearing our clients in silence. We hear them with an open heart. There's no judgment or criticism. If we feel they're disappearing off into a story, we'll gently guide them back into what the, the work that they've done. But it's about giving that person the place to express safely, securely, and to be heard, to be witnessed. And as they start to do that journey, you start to see the changes on their face. You start to see the way they sit more proudly in the chair, the way they stop fiddling with their fingers or with their hair or, you know, their glasses or whatever it is. Whatever those little things are, they they calm and you start to see them grow. And usually by the time they're doing their relationship graph, they're saying to you, oh, my gosh, I feel so different. You know, I'm already starting to feel change. And then they've got the letter to go and they get to the letter. And sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes you see that change and it's it's like it's like the sun coming out. It's beautiful. Sometimes it takes a few days because your subconscious has to learn to process it all and let go of it. And oh, that's, that's, a, that's a, so to the I guess I would ask if somebody's experiencing grief or loss or have just lost somebody, mm -hmm. um, do you think that's the first step or, or is there something that would lead up to the letter? No, it's actually really important to do the whole process because the whole process is, it's like a guide to guide you to where you need to be to write the letter, you know, to be able to right. understand that there are things you need to forgive. It's been scientifically proven that if you um, take at least 1% of responsibility with forgiveness and apologies, you can release your grief. But you have to be able to take responsibility. If you don't take responsibility, you will never get past it. Um, in my experience, when I'm working with my clients and also with the many completions I've done myself, you do your forgiveness. And as you're working on your forgiveness, it's like the other side of a coin. Up comes the apology because you can suddenly see, oh, actually, I can apologize for that. I can forgive you for that. And I can apologize for my part in that. And, you know, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's really important, but I've never yet worked with a client where I haven't had one thing pop up alongside the other. And they can be the same subject, but the different sides of the subject. Different sides of the subject. That's interesting. From different kinds. Yeah, different. Up, yeah. That's, that's a, um, you're making me think a little bit more about, you know, I, I had had an interview with an individual um, that is a medium. Mm -hmm. And she believes in, you know, communicating with the other side. And mm -hmm. um, her process for closure is kind of almost the same thing, mm -hmm. is to get them to write a letter to that person for yeah. the closure. And that, um, you know, you write down everything 
just free form, whatever it happened to be. If you're angry at them, if you're mad at them, if you're happy, if you're sad, whatever you are feeling, she says, write that down. And that way you can pretty much let it go on your own. You, this is how you let it go because you wrote the letter to them. And then she tells you, you can either put it away in a drawer or you, she, the other option is to take it out and burn it in the fireplace to let the ashes, you know, kind of. Absolutely. And, and again, it. you know, we never tell a client, oh, you know, keep that forever in a day. It's up to the client what they do with their letters right. if they want to keep them. But it's always advised to keep them where they're private so that nobody can find them because you wouldn't want somebody else to read your innermost thoughts right. and, you know, suddenly go, oh, my gosh. And you certainly would never put it in the post because oh, exactly. the person on the other side wouldn't really understand, you know, the, the great majority of what it is you're releasing. So yeah, they're I, yeah, I a personal thing. I, yeah, I would definitely. That's a, that's a unique process that I, I see how it comes back around, but in a different way. Mm. So this is pretty cool, actually. So. You run a group, a support group for alienated grandparents. Yes. Can you tell me about that and how to get involved? So it's actually going to change a little bit because COVID has really um, been very impactful. A lot of a lot of grandparents really don't feel comfortable with Zoom, so it's been very difficult to hold Zoom meetings for a lot of the time. And of course, I was dealing with my own journey with my mother, so it's had quite an impact this year. But in the past, um, it's created a place where people could sit together with a cup of tea or coffee. If they wanted to have cake, there was cake there. It gave them a space to talk about the experiences they'd had in the last month. It also gave them a place to be involved if they wanted to be in raising awareness and also to hear the latest news from whatever things have been going on in Parliament or that our local MPs had been working towards for us. Right. So um, it, it was a place to have a forum. It was a place to have space to be in your own pain but be supported by others who absolutely got you, you know, because if you've never been through alienation, you'll never understand. And, you know, when people turn around and say to you, what did you do? when actually you you didn't do anything, didn't do anything. In particular, you know. Yeah. And also there are, you know, there's sadly with a lot of our adult children now, the this sort of 40 down to 20 age group, there is a massive amount of self-entitlement. And the generation is all about, you know, oh, you didn't give me this, you didn't give me that. But no child yeah. comes with a manual. God help us if we birthed a manual as well as a child. My God, I'd be like an elephant, not a you know a nine a nine month carrying woman. And you know, we only know what we grew up with. So a great majority of our parents were brought up by Edwardians who were so straight laced and you know very stern. And especially also quite religious families, very stern. So their own childhoods were not so happy. So when right. they brought us into the world and we had the swinging 60s, of which I'm a, a 64 baby, 
you know, our generation was different again. There was more freedom. And so a lot of parents abdicated doing anything because they didn't know how to parent. And then there was the other side where you had parents who did the very best they could, like my mum, with the tools that she had and with the, you know, what she didn't have financially. She did what she could do for us with what she had. So then we grow up and we have our children and we look at our childhood and we go, well, I don't want that for my child. I mean, I came out of my childhood going, I'm never going to get married. And then, you know, and I'm not going to have children because I had such a tough time as a kid Mm. and I did not want to revisit that. And then more for me, I met my ex-husband, you know, and my mind changed, but my mind changed the other way. I'm never going to go through a divorce. So I'd already set the belief that I was never going to go through a divorce. I was going to stay in that marriage come what may. And I did. And it was to my detriment. And it was also to the detriment of the relationship with my child. You know, and I I tried really hard to protect her from his alcoholic outbursts and his behaviours. And there were times when she stood between us and said, Daddy, don't do that to mummy. And that was, it was a horrible place to be. And all of the behaviours that went with it and all of the things that were said were so very painful that I eventually had to come away. And the last thing I expected was the punishment of taking my child away from me. I I just never saw it coming. And yeah, that's difficult as yeah, as a parent, that would be devastating. I mean, obviously, it, it's, I mean, not all my listeners are parents, but I can attest to that fact as well. It's devastating. And coming from a child that, that, that was in an environment where my mother took me and my brother away from my father, it, it's also devastating from a child's perspective, looking, looking up into that. didn't do that you know my my father actually had been I now know incredibly unkind to her financially and emotionally and um I don't know have you heard of the Cray twins the very famous mafia of London of the East End in the 50s and 60s I have not sorry they were very nasty people and they ruled you know the 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 underworld of London with a very um, mobsters. Yeah. And my dad worked for them. That's why my mother left him. I didn't know that until I'd done my grief recovery training. And actually I asked my mom, why did you leave my dad? And then when she started this health journey last year, she told me the rest of why she left. And I was quite horrified at the things that I learned, but I also understood more the journey of trauma that I'd grown up in. But not at any time did my mother ever put him down in front of us. There were times when there was never money for food. So, you know, she would she would literally not have any food in the house on a Sunday when he was supposed to come and see us. And sometimes he never turned up and we'd been out of bed for hours, washed dry, clean, you know, spotless clothes, absolutely ready to go. And he told her he was going to take us for breakfast and lunch and dinner, and then he'd bring us home, and then he wouldn't turn up. And she would be breaking her heart. 
wondering how on earth she was going to feed us when all she had in the in the house was coffee and she drank it black on a Sunday because there was no milk because she was saving the milk for Monday morning to go with our breakfast. Yeah, see that's what what a what a journey to come from that to where you are at now. Mm. Um you you have created an environment for other people, whether it be through grief or through the alienation aspect of it, which is still grief in, in, in respect okay. to what you just talked about, um, mm -hmm. along with some, I think you got trained in suicide prevention and the brain trauma recovery mm -hmm. area. You give back in a very positive way, coming from the negative environment that you, you grew up in and turning it into this, is an amazing journey. Mm. Amazing and journey. it humbles me every day. So if somebody wanted to, um, well, let me ask you this first. Because of all that and where you're at now, what you've gone through, what inspires you? Seeing people rise again. Seeing people find themselves underneath the detritus of life and seeing seeing how they can become who they truly are and they can have the abundance and joy in their lives that they really deserve. So they can, you know, they can go off and get the job they never expected and they can have more confidence and more self-esteem and value themselves more. You know, there's no reason why not one of us human beings should be devalued you know, and if we can value ourselves truly from our heart, we shine. And when we shine, other people are attracted to us and we grow. It brings it brings a beautiful perspective to life. And it's it's really humbling when I, I have my clients, you know, tell me the wonderful things that are happening in their lives. And <laughs> that's what inspires me to keep doing this. It's changing the world one step at a time. You know, we, we also have a program for children that uh, a lot of the specialists are working on at the moment where we're teaching the adults how to listen to the children in their grief and how to understand the children. Because if we can change what children are going through, the next lot of adults are going to be a lot healthier. And that's what inspires me, really. That's amazing. Do you have any advice for others that are going through the same journey you're going through? Treat yourself with compassion, buckets and buckets of compassion, and treat yourself with empathy. Don't don't flagellate yourself with I should have, I could have, I sh you know, I need to, I have to. Actually take a step back and breathe and really evaluate what it is that's going on and do you really need it? You know, I walked away from a job in dentistry when actually I really needed the income, but the, the value of it to me was that I was seeing people lied to each day. Right. And, you know, morally that didn't sit comfortably with me. And I couldn't tell those lies to support another person who was making money out of, you know, the people walking in the door. So I walked away. And you have to be brave enough to reevaluate and detach yourself if you can from that immediacy of the pain and just breathe and just say, actually, what is it I need? What do I want to do? 
Do I want to be well? Do I want to be fit? Do I want to be emotionally healthy as well as mentally healthy? Or do I still want to be that quivering wreck in a corner? Do I still want to be the poor, hard-done-by soul that's never going to get anywhere? How can somebody get a hold of you if they're looking for help or if they're looking to um, like connect with you? So I have a page on LinkedIn, and I can be found easily on, on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook, either on my personal page or my business page. I also have my uh, little website on the Grief Recovery UK site, which is um, www.grieferuk.org forward slash Debbie. And I spell my first name slightly differently to everybody else. So I spell my name D-E-B-I. And is that worldwide or is that just restrictive to no, not no, your name? I say. <laughs> because I work online, I can work with clients all over the world. And I have done. I, I've had a couple of clients in the US. And in fact, one who I'm working with at the moment who's out in Oklahoma, who was extremely bereft, had been through a very painful, destructive marriage and ended up losing connection with her children because he took them because he could. Um, and there was an awful lot of abuse. There was an awful lot of punishing self-talk and um, a lot of disconnection and a lot of misunderstanding. And she sat and did the journey with me and she said for the first time in her life that she actually was feeling heard whereas she'd been to all the different counsellors that you have in the US and the therapists and the, the church counsellors and therapists, and she'd felt very unheard. And she messaged me the other day to say that her daughter, who she thought absolutely hated her and was in such a terrible place, actually is reconnecting. And was saying, Mum, I was trying to reconnect with you and you kept pushing me away. But Mum kept pushing her away because she was so terrified and so fearful of all the incidences she'd been through before. And this is where the misunderstanding comes in as well. It's also a form of grief because you put up barriers that are painful barriers. And those barriers cause a lot of harm, you know, and now her children, two out of the three adult children are starting to gravi gravitate back into her life. That's outstanding. Outstanding, outstanding. I will have links to all of those in the show notes for you so that's easy for people to uh, connect with you. And this is one more thing before you go. So is there any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with us before we go? Be yourself. Always be yourself. Don't put a mask on and hide behind it. Because in being yourself, somebody else might have the courage to put their hand up and say, I need help. Amazing. Outstanding and profound. Debbie, thank you very much for sharing your journey with me. I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate the tips, the experience, the knowledge, and the sharing. I appreciate you for what you do for the world. Thank you. And I, I am, I'm just so humbled that you asked me to come along and I really do appreciate the time you've given me today. You know, it's, um, grief recovery is a big passion. 
This is this has been an amazing conversation, and I thank again, again, I thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.